This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. All right, guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with Andrew Alexander, let's just take care of a little bit of business. Take a little bit of business. First things first is Total Boat. Total Boat, thank you for sponsoring the podcast. They're a company that started making adhesives, paints, primers, primers, and polishing compounds for boaters and DIYers. And they decided to get into the uh, the maker world. And they're using their two-part epoxies and the thick set of casting epoxies and all their other great stuff for makers. Makers like Derek Fromaldin and Keith Johnson, Keith Mitchell, uh, Keith Decent, Jeremy DeResta, they're all using uh, the Total Boat products. And I'm actually using their uh, their epoxies for handle scales, which is dynamite. I love it. And uh, it's really user-friendly. The, the pumps are really great. One of the great things for knife makers is, is you can you can get their pump system, and when you do one pump of each, it's not like enough for 10 knives. You can do it one pump each for uh, one knife, which is actually really, really handy. So if you go to... Uh, totalboat.com, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off your order. They're great people, and I really appreciate Total Boat, especially considering um, they've been super helpful to this podcast and me, and they're good people, and I really appreciate it. Uh, number two is Axe Wax. Axe Wax is all-natural food-safe wax for your axe, for your steel, for your G10, for your whatever. I actually put it on all my G10. Uh, it's a great finish. It's all natural food safe. So you don't have to worry about anything icky, especially if you're making culinary stuff and you know you don't want to have any stuff out there. It's really great stuff. And if you go to axewax.us and you put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off your entire order. And if you're in the UK, UKKnifesupplies.com, they're going to take FULLBLAST10. If you're in Australia, NordicEdge.com.au is going to take FULLBLAST10. And knifematerial.at is going to take Full Blast 10 for Axe Wax. And it's dynamite stuff, and I've been using it a lot. Uh, I use it all the time. I actually have to order a couple pucks, and I will use promo code Full Blast 10. It's cheap enough. You might as well get some more and save a little bit uh, with Full Blast 10. So once again, Noah, thank you so much for sponsoring the show. I really do appreciate it. Next thing is, is your website, guys. I think you should start to think about your website as something more to help you, help you get... Uh, your work done faster. You can spend more time in the shop, less time doing back and forwards in the DMs. DMs is a dirty place to be. And eh, blot of tire kickers and window shoppers and is really not the place for you. You should be working in your shop with all your information on the different models that you make or whatever you make or how you can get it across and how you can sell it and what's the shipping lead time. You can have all those questions answered on your website. And if you go to akinteractive.com, Andreas Kalani has 20 years of experience in design and marketing for corporations before he was a knife maker. This guy was before he was a knife maker. He was doing this for a living. He was designing websites, corporate identities, entire company branding. And he can make you a website that's mobile friendly that you can actually update on your website. If you have a website, he can fix your website. If you need a new website, he can build your new website. It's definitely great. And Andreas Kalani is a maker and he speaks your language, which is huge because then you don't have to explain things and it's dynamite. So go get yourself a good website. Uh, Andreas Kalani is your guy. He's made great websites for guys like Steve Schwarzer, Mike Tyree, Charlie Lionheart. He does a great job and they're happy with it. And if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. So once again, 20 years of experience, I can't thank Andreas Kalani for sticking with me 
uh, appreciate it. And, uh, and he also consult with you. So you go to uh, akinteractive.com slash full blast. You fill out the information, and then he's going to get back to you and figure out exactly what you need, which is great, which is great. And the last but not least, I have to thank Broadbeck Ironworks. They did a solid for me, and I really appreciate it. I was, I'm working on this project, and I was wanted a surface grinder, and I got their, they sent me a surface grinder, and I really appreciate it. Their grinders are great. They're super user-friendly. You can use them horizontally. You can use them vertically. Uh, their surface grinders are dynamite. All their attachments are great, and if you already have a grinder and you don't need the chassis, they're Attachments are very user-friendly, and they fit into most chassis of most uh, grinders, so which is great. And you can go horizontal, you know, vertical. It's definitely something that if you know more than just knife makers can use a two by seventy-two grinder, and and theirs are really great. They're both forge and fire competitors. They both are knife makers. They know what you need. And if you go to broadbeckironworks.com. They have a lot of promos going on right now, and uh, I know for for the Blade Show, they're going to be having a, a number of different sets. You should figure out, figure out what they're going to do. Towards holidays, they're always having different sales, and uh, definitely, 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 if you just want to kind of dip your toe into what they're doing, get the Mareco Platin. The Mareco Platin is excellent. It's an excellent platin with two different style wheels and a deeper throat. It's really good. And they have a new tilting, uh, a new tilting work rest, which I have to get my hands on one soon. So go get yourself some Broadback Ironworks, and uh, I appreciate the fact that they have been so supportive of Knife Talk and the Full Blast Podcast. So thanks again. My guest today is very, very, has been, he's been very, everyone is very excited that Andrew Alexander's here, Blacksmith Tools on Instagram. He is quite a character. Andrew, how the hell are you? Yeehaw, baby. Yeehaw, baby. I got to tell you, I want to thank, I want to thank you because I know you do podcasting. You're on the Fits All podcast and, and I appreciate the fact that you're here. I also appreciate the fact that you kind of, you stuck with me through technical issues and dude listen i've been on the other side of that my entire every podcast that i do i screw up the technology so this is good but it's not you see the pro here's the problem with all these podcasts is for some reason some people just think that if you sound like shit it doesn't matter and that you can just if you talk people are going to listen and that's always not the case i think that most podcasters are, when they do it for a while, they start to realize that it's not just what you say, but it, a lot of it, believe it or not, is how it sounds. So this totally. fucking thing, Squadcast, the technical issues, I've had to walk people through all this stuff, and it's just it's such a drag for me. So I definitely appreciate you putting me through it and the fact that we, this is now the, the second or third iteration of this podcast. So I appreciate you being here. Man, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. What have you been up to lately? I, uh, you know, during the colder months, I do a lot of picking, right? And I do that because it's the time of year when there's no leaves on the trees, if they're, you know, deciduous trees, and uh, you can see through the woods, you can see things that would be covered by shrubs and all that during the summer months. And so I do a lot of picking in the colder months because you can, a lot of the stuff is outside in the middle of nowhere, you know, and you'll just see it better. When you say picking, you're talking about picking tools. Picking tools, yeah. right? You're not talking. You, not my you, nose. You're not talking about picking apples. You're, this is no. your business. Your business is is finding and refurbishing and selling equipment. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, it's a it's a legacy quest. It's a it, it's a chance to take something that would be dying or is dead and and giving it new life. Yeah, I th I mean it's 
I, I, I hate, I hate antiquing. I hate bargaining, and I appreciate guys like you. Actually, a number, I was a year ago or so. I had a neighbor who told me, "Oh, they got this, got this uh, friend of ours who inherited this barn, and they have an anvil, and they didn't know what to do with it." And then they contacted me. They sent me some terrible pictures. Terrible. Pictures. Oh, everyone does. Totally. They sent me terrible pictures, and they said, "What would you do with it?" And I said, "I don't know. I might have sent it to Jesse Savage." And my sister yeah. says, "What do you think?" And he's just like, "Ah, oh, you know, up in see the thing is the different parts of the country, the prices are all very different." Like the places where they're lousy with anvils is so much cheaper than like I'm here in New York. People have no idea, but so I don't know. Jesse said, "Ah, oh, you know that's probably worth about 150 bucks or something like that." And sure. I think that I said to them, "Oh, because yeah, it was all chewed up. It was a Peter Wright anvil that knocks on it. The corners are all fucked up. It had a lot of sway. It just like looked like it had been you know used somebody used to use their torch as a torch table or something." Right, right. It was owned by a beaver or a shark or something. Right, right, uh, right. And then when I got, and then I, I offer, I said, okay. And then I thought, oh, if I offer 150 bucks, they're going to be mad at me. And I, I know these people. So I said, I think I said like 200 bucks, something like that. And then they were like, okay, great. So I went to pick it up. And as soon as I walked in to pick it up with the tran truck, I was just like, I'm mugging these people. I'm totally <laughs> mugging these people. And I remember <laughs> you reached out to me about it because I wrote, I think I did an Instagram story about it. And I was just like, yeah, I can't believe I got this. For, I feel bad now. And, and you, you were, you were very, very like, you were very encouraging. You just like, well, I mean, you might have to explain it, but it was something along the lines of your procedure when dealing with a person you're going to buy something from based on if they're a woman or a man or older. Or Do you remember what you said to me? Yeah, there's a lot of theories there. I don't remember exactly what I said to you, but I, I, I'm sure it was somewhere along the lines of, you know, if they price it then and you pay it, that's... There's no, there's no harm. There's no foul there, unless it's like, a, like a totally ridiculous price, and it's an old grandma that doesn't know any better. Yeah, uh, and she gives you a low price, and you take it. Then you're a total piece of shit. But <laughs> if not, if some somebody prizes it and you pay it, this that's a business transaction. It just is what it is. I did feel bad because they looked at me like. Well, number one, I felt bad. Well, number one, I was just like, I don't want anyone else to get it. And I would imagine, as not a person who likes to buy and sell shit, yeah, I would maybe imagine that's, that's the a- thing with anvils. It, maybe that's the stereotype behind anvils is when someone sees it, I don't want anyone else to get it. <laughs> there have been so many <laughs> projects. Actually, I'm working on a project now that I, I just I loathe doing. But the only reason why I did it is because I don't want anyone else to do it. I'm doing it out of spite, you know. Okay. So I, I can understand that that the whole the anvil buying and selling is is like. I mean, how did you get into? How did you get into? Because your your whole operation is so wide. I mean, you have beautiful. Just I there was like a, I remember seeing a, a shelf with like thousands of anvils and well, maybe not thousands, but you have beautiful equipment, all this old stuff that you. How, how did you get into this? So the, 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 the romantic aspect of it uh, came to me when I was younger. Growing up, on the summer months, I would spend uh, my time with my uncle in Durant, Oklahoma, and he was a cattle rancher. He would uh, raise Hereford cattle, which is the white-faced cows right. with the red bodies, and everything was horseback. This was before ATVs and all that were a big thing. You know, Some people had three-wheelers or whatever, but everything was done by horseback, and here I am like this totally green city slicker that gets introduced into this world and i absolutely fell in love with it day one right and uh you know at the end of the day or sometimes in the morning you would see these guys they would be you know shoeing their horses their farrier would be working on something and there'd be an anvil and then it, it progressed like it would it would progress into like oh i needed something for you know this tool or whatever and 
I would watch them make that. And I was like, I was totally mesmerized that you could take a piece of steel, heat it up and manipulate it into something that was then functional. Right. That wasn't functional before. So at the age of 17, I bought my very first anvil and then it just uh, was completely uphill from there and I've never stopped. Uh, there's been times when I was more focused and there's been times when I was less focused, but it's never gone away. But I, I seem to remember hearing you say either on your videos or other people that you're not a blacksmith. Like That's I, right. Like I, don't yeah, feel no. like, like, I don't feel like you like to do it, like to do the forging part. You're about the equipment. I, so I like to do it, but I would just say to, I, I like to be the best at everything, right? Right. And uh, I have not spent the time necessary to be the best blacksmith. But on the historian side of it, on the restoration side of it, I feel like I'm the best. Like I, I want to represent the best and be able to provide people with the best knowledge, the best information I can based off of what my interests are. Right. My interest is not as a maker. My interest is um, providing the makers with tools to do their job because I get the enjoyment out of seeing somebody make something with something that I've restored. You have this quality. I was trying to figure it out. and It, it almost seemed more like, it almost seemed more like you were like P.T. Barnum. You're the facilitator. You're the ringmaster. Facilitator and, of progress. I've been called that before. What, P.T. Barnum or facilitator? No, the facilitator of progress. Well, right. there's, you have this you know, greatest showman quality to you, and you also, not to mention, you, know, you do get the most beautiful. I, well, every time I see what you, you got it going on, except for that last anvil that you put up for five grand, that was, that was, <laughs> I want to know. got to talk about that. I, I don't think a lot of people thought that was a joke. But, no, you know, I got a lot of really mean messages about so, that. So <laughs> just recently you posted this anvil that looked like it might have been the bottom of the river it, or not even the bottom of the river it looked like it'd been just been like melted <clears throat> by the sun it was yeah, like, like it was it was the worst of the worst condition anvils period i mean you can't get them any more terrible than I, that i it was it was a degree of i mean a rot i mean i never seen <clears throat> steel it looked like it it might have been in like a it'd been melted away so the, the thing to think about with that anvil, that the composition of that anvil would have been, if it's a fisher, so it would have been a, you know, a cast body and a, and a right. tool steel top, hardened steel top. So the face of the anvil was gone. So what you had left was the, the cast, the more brittle portion of it. So whatever happened to either the face de-welded and came off, whatever it was, somebody just used that anvil as if it was still there, right? And it, and it just shipped off and sloughed off and all that until it became what it is now which is a beautiful five thousand dollar one-of-a-kind fisher anvil well now here's the thing here's the so here's what's hilarious about you you put it up on your instagram five thousand dollars which is like i mean and in my mind i'm thinking that's a joke and then i'm thinking Maybe this was like the Queen's anvil or something. Maybe this was like, this is somebody's special anvil. This is like, you know, like Jesus's anvil or something. Like, totally. this has got some serious, this is, maybe there's enough history to it that he's not joking. What kind of response did you get to the $5,000 oh, piece of shit? Yeah. I, the, the ones that, that I liked the most were the ones, the people that were like, I know what, I know what I have, you know, type of thing. Like, don't try to lowball me. I know what I have. Right. So they were playing along with it. But the ones that sent me private messages were like, you're such an asshole. You know, why do really? you, why, why is it that you think ambles should cost this much and all that? I'm just thinking to myself, like, 
either you hate yourself, you have no sense of humor, you live inside of a closed box and can't see the world for what it is, or you don't follow, maybe you're new to follow my page and you just saw this one, you know, there's a lot of variations there, but the reality is it was a joke. And if, if people were offended by it, then great. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was, but you're very, you're very funny. I mean, on the Fitzall podcast, you're hilarious, and and you're generally when you when you do all your things, you know, you you your videos and on Instagram and stuff like that, you're always very funny. So I was surprised that you would get people would really believe that you were serious. Well, I think I think people in general, if they know and follow me, they they probably think that I just am a hoarder of this stuff and don't share. But the reality is, I share a lot. I give a lot away. I donate a lot. Uh, I sell a lot. You know, so yes, you're seeing things in, in, in great numbers here, but that doesn't mean that they all stay, right? What's your typical day? Like, you, you, let's just let's say your typical week. Just a typical week. That you know that this is, all right, now we're in picking season. Yep. What is your, what's your, I don't, I'm trying to figure out how you amassed all the stuff that you have. What is your, what is a good picking week entail? So I, that, I can answer that several ways. How did I amass all this stuff is many, many years of being persistent, right? Yeah. And now when I go somewhere, I don't want to just buy, like, I'm not going to go drive three hours to pick up an Amble. I'm going to drive three hours to pick up everything that person owned. Right, right? the shop, the whole shop. Yeah, because you a lot of times you're helping these people out and the situations are always very unique. Right. Right. And a lot of times when you're going to buy everything, someone's died or someone has inherited it, or it was in a building that someone bought. So the outcome of you extracting those items, whatever they are, means that you're helping out that person. They need to sell this house. They got to clean it out so that they can sell it or they, the desire of the person who's deceased is was for this stuff to still be used, right? And if they don't get it out, then it would probably go to the scrapyard type of thing. So, you know, there's probably some grim story. I, I can tell oh, now that dude. I think about it because I've been in only a couple situations where we needed to get stuff out quickly, right? And the, you, there is this air, this air of dis- desperation to not only just get the best price possible, but get it the fuck out. And especially yeah. like I know that you know you guys, you and and, and other other guys clean out whole metal shops and it's like it's usually not under the greatest situation i would imagine that you've seen some kind of grim some grim situations oh yeah i I, i've seen uh, i did one one time that was by the airport here it was a machine shop they had some blacksmithing stuff in there and it was uh it was the great grandfathers the grandfathers the dads and then the dad died and it was the daughters god and they were the people that didn't throw anything away ever Right. And it was a small, like 3,500 square foot shop, not small, but you know, in the grand right. scheme of things, but it's so packed full of stuff that, that I didn't even know where to start really. Right. So, and she was emotional about it and she was an actress. Right. And I, she, an actress, quote unquote actress. Yes. I don't think she was ever in anything or ever did anything, but probably did lots of tryouts. She was, she was like a, a woman that was lost in her own mind. Right. Right. She, drinking every day. Da, 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 da. So I I, took, I spent six months going back and forth with her on whether or not she wanted to sell everything. Once we decided that she wanted to sell everything, it was all contingent on if I could make a sculpture for her that represented each of the generations of her ham- family heritage 
based off of the stuff I had found inside this building. Okay. And there was, they went through like this computer part stage. They went through this like collecting cardboard box stage. I mean, it was, it was, so I just put together this stupid ass, you know, fucking, uh, figurine sculpture called the, uh, I think I called it the machine shop, man. It was just like calipers for the, for the like torso and, you know, just different goofy parts. And she fell in love with it. She was like this and she cried and da, 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 da. But yeah, so each situation is is very different, very very different. And if you go to a metal show, and how do you like? Are there? Do you obviously most of these situations are probably very quick turnaround. How yeah. do you come up with bids on everything? Or do you see like maybe you go into a shop and you say, "I want that lathe," or I don't know, or something, and you that's the only thing that's worth it. But I'll take everything else in order to get it. Do you have to do that kind of stuff? Yeah, sometimes. And like t- going back to that same story. They had a lot of just steel in there, just raw steel. And I have a friend that uh, has a landscaping business, and he does a lot of welding projects on the side and stuff. So I called him, and I said, Rocky, listen, if you and your guys come down here and clean this building out for me, you can have everything except for these items that I wanted, right? But I'm not going to pay you. Your payment is these things. Right. I'll take my stuff. You take your stuff. And, and we did it. It was amazing, right? So it's all relationships. A lot of these things are networking and relationships. It is 100% relationship. If you think that you can't, if you don't connect with the person that you're buying from, it's not, it's not going to be good for anybody. Not that it's going to be bad, but it's just not going to be like a successful trip. And you're a pretty charming guy. Funny, charming, good looking. Uh, I I guess. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know what to say to that. I, I believe in being nice and being honest, yeah. right? And I believe in being empathetic. And I believe in, 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 like, last week I was in Oklahoma, and I was going. It, this has been a progressive deal. I was buying a lot of this guy's shop. He got cancer. And um, I was dealing with his wife because he could no longer go outside. I had stopped there three or four weeks ago and, and talked with her, and we made a deal. And she said, can you come back? And I went back last week, and he had died in the meantime. Ugh. You know, so it was, it's, it's crazy. It, it, was a, it was a crazy event altogether, that one was. On the way there, this, like, 18-wheeler refrigerated truck flipped over literally, like, right in front of us on the highway and went skidding, like, skidding down. By the time it stopped, I had stopped, and uh, I had another guy with me, and we got out and checked. On, I mean, so that was part of it. And then we're pulling up to their house, and I told the guy that was riding with me, I said, listen, last time I was here, this woman, she has a dog, loves to bite the tires of the car. And so if it does, I obviously don't want to run it over, especially her husband had just died, right? And uh, uh-uh. so if the dog goes crazy, I want you to come out and, and get it away from my truck and trailer so I don't kill it right in front of her. And uh, he's like, okay, and we pull up, and the dog wasn't there. It was down at the house, and... There were some other people there, and they left. When they left, about 30 seconds later, you hear this. Oh, no. They ran over the dog. And the dog comes, you know, loafing back down to the house. This is as we are starting to load things up, right? The lady had just had knee surgery. She's on a walker, walking through the dirt. So I'm trying to watch out for her so she doesn't tumble because she's. I'll leave that part out. She... I just yeah, didn't want her to fall. And uh, the dog comes running up, and she's like, son of a bitch. I've got a pistol in my pocket. I might have shoot that fucking dog. And I'm, like, looking at her like, wait a minute. The dog, I think, is okay. He's, got, he's bloody. 
on his face and whatnot, but I don't think you need to kill him, you know? And the guy that was with me, Juan, he was like, is she going to kill that dog? And I said, no, I'm not going to let her kill the dog. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's has an injury that is like, you know, terminal. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know? So this is the beginning of that pick. Like it was wild. But you just have to adapt and be flexible and go with it. And things are what they are. What's the best, what's the best pick you ever had? The best pick I ever had was in Rocky Ford, Colorado. I got a I got a call from a guy. His name Tom Alley, and I had never met him before. He was like, "Hey, listen, um, I wrote down your number two years ago and meant to call you then, but I'm calling you now. And essentially, why I'm calling you is because um, I'm sick, and my my doctor said don't buy any green bananas, type of thing." And, you know, it, it automatically dawned on me that he would be dead pretty quick. And uh, he was like, I, for the last 40 years, have been collecting blacksmithing equipment, machine shop equipment, hearses, and mortuary equipment. Right? And instantly, I was freaked out. Like, I'd never heard of anything like that type of collection. He lived in his building. It was all under one roof. And uh, no kids, never been married. I mean, just the craziest shit. So I was like, okay, I can be there in two weeks, right? And he was like, okay, that works. And I was going to be there on a Monday. And on the Saturday before I'm going on Monday, I get a call from a woman that says, hey, I'm so-and-so, the executor of Tom Alley's estate. He passed away yesterday. Uh, we had him cremated today, and we'll spread his ashes tomorrow before you get here on Monday. And I'm thinking, like, I think I'm going to get killed if I go to this deal. You Why? Know, like, it just seemed so bizarre. like the the whole like mortuary equipment and and uh, uh oh. you know hearses and stuff like i've not right. been around that i don't even know anybody else that collects that stuff of course and then you know jimmy ends up with one of the hearses like okay he's a super freak also is what i'm getting at <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah know, like, that's Jesus. right like i can't imagine like as an elective driving a hearse around like for fun unless it was it's Halloween definitely or it's definitely not for everybody definitely not for me like he asked if i could help load it and stuff and i was like no i'm not now, did you before you went out there did you agree on a price no so this is where it gets really crazy so the when he was dying in the building uh the uh what do you call those the hospice nurse yeah. he yeah. dictates a note to the hospice nurse she writes it down and it says that and i didn't see the note until after but it says you know that he still wanted me to come buy everything at uncontested prices what does so, that mean? I think the way I interpreted it was that they were not to ne negotiate with me. Just whatever right. I said was to be the number. Oh, That's so whatever you were to say, whatever number you said, go, go with it. Yeah, because nothing was priced. Wow. Nothing. And it was, his stuff was all completely restored to the finest detail, like museum detail. When I got there, okay, so the woman that, that, that called me on the Saturday happened to be his girlfriend, I think from 40 years ago. They hadn't really spoken many, many years. And she was like, she got everything, everything, the building, the land, the money, the everything. I, was, I even asked her, I was like, well, I probably should leave. I asked her, I was like, did he have money in his bank account? And she said, yes. And they're, they're, she told me the number. It was pretty substantial. So I was like, well, you won the lottery, obviously, you know, good for yeah. you. So she was cool. She was super happy and super sweet lady. Uh, long short is I, I walked into this building and I was, there was more devil heads and work, devil like skulls and shit. Like I was 
I was not, I was kind of scared slash like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> Until I started seeing the equipment and I was like, oh my God, this is like, this is crazy. So what I did was, I, uh, to answer your question in more depth, is like, how do you figure out like what, what you're buying, what you're paying for it and all that kind of stuff. And that situation was so much under one roof that she and I walked around and I was like, all right, I'll pay you 10,000 for everything in this corner. Right. And so what I would look at that corner and I would find $10,000 worth of value and, and base my offer off of that. And then everything else that would come with that package would just be a bonus. Right. Right. So that's one way to do it. It's maybe not the preferred each time, but and what was the and what was the best thing on that pick that you got? Um, I got a a, a, a Whitcomb a metal planer that I think he must have spent either I, I I think it was spent the majority of his life restoring because of how nice it is. Either that or it was never used. But it, it, the scraper marks are still on the bed. I mean, it it is the finest of the machines that I have that are from the eighteen hundreds. And do you still have it? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. And that's never going to leave? No, no. Or someone's going to have to offer you a ridiculous amount of money? Yeah, okay, so I'll play that game all day. I I like that game because, you know, I have things that are quote-unquote not for sale, meaning that, you know, I'm still enjoying them uh, more than I would value their dollar amount, right? Mm -hmm. But when people come in here and they do, and they're like, hey, I'll pay you X for that, and it's just a dumb number, I let them take it because then I'll just take that money and go buy something else. So I'm trying to figure out like these, because I'm obviously you're not going to, you're not going to go, you know, states away. You're in Texas. You're not going to go all the way to Colorado unless you're pretty sure it's going to be, you know, how do you like in a situation like this, how do you gauge what kind of truck to bring and how much money to bring? And is this all this big, I mean, are you going to get skunked or is it going to be like, you're going to find some bonuses. I'm trying to figure out how you get in your mindset of like, all right, there's, I got to go to Oklahoma from, you know, I don't know how long of a drive that is. And I got to get the flatbed or I don't know what I got to get. And how do you work out how you're going to do it all? So each situation is different. There are some fundamental things that I, I do. I, Regardless of where I'm going or what I'm going to get, I will always bring my 35-foot gooseneck trailer just because. And I always have these big wire baskets on it so that if I'm buying little things, I can just throw it in these baskets. Each one's hold 4,000 pounds. Just throw it in there and keep going, right? Now, like the deal in Colorado, what was unique about it is he had a flip phone, right? So not he didn't have like a phone that would take pictures. So I asked him if I could see pictures of what he was telling me he had and he said he would, but he doesn't have like, you know, he didn't have the capability to, to share it that way. So I just, I just went off of my gut on that one. I, my wife and I talked about, it. I was like, do you think I'm going to get murdered going to this place? Like, am I being set up? That's something that I'm always curious about. Like, you know, cause you, I'm going, you know, usually by myself to a place that I've never been. And I'm just basing it off of what someone's telling me, which could be anything, you know? So that was a unique one. But for the most part, with the technology these days, I can get some pictures. And I usually just say, hey, I don't want individualized pictures. I just, just, just take me a picture of that side of the room, right? And I do that for two reasons. One, so that I can see what they have. And two, so that I can shop the picture. Speaking of that, there was the only time I ever had something like that where I was actually really scared was I was helping 
take apart a restaurant in New York City. And I remember we had they had all these compressors, and I was told, and I didn't know anything about any of it. I was still like you know twenty something. I, I didn't know anything about you know compressors for low boys and you know these refrigerator units and stuff like that. And I, and the bot that my boss told me is just you know call one of the companies down at um, there are these companies down in Canal Street, and they'll come up and they'll just you know give you a price and take it away. And I remember trying to get these guys to come up, and we had to get them out. My boss was like, I don't get them out. And these guys showed up late. I said, you guys coming? You guys coming? And they're like, yeah, we're coming. We're coming. Hour later. We're coming. We're coming. Hour later. Coming. Come. Finally, these two guys show up. I, we walk around. And then they do something. And then I do something. And I walk away. And then next thing you know, they're nowhere to be found. And two of the compressors are just gone. Perfect. And, well, it was perfect until my boss was like, how much did you get for him? And I was like, well, I didn't get killed for him. That's number one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my life is, my, my life is here. And these, and it was like this weird, it was, just, I can imagine that you're dealing with, and these fucking guys, they're just like scum, you know, scrappers or whatever like that. I'm sure you, you deal with kind of like these weird situations. Yeah, they're called iron pirates. They're called iron pirates. This is what I call them. Yeah, iron pirates. Because they'll steal, they'll steal from you in a heartbeat. Have you had bad ex- what what was the what were, do you have any bad experiences picking? Um I get told no a lot. That's that's one thing that I don't ever really share is the capture of the no. You know, you get told no 10 times to every you know, one time that you get told yes. And on that yes, it may be a very weak yes. You know, it's not every time that you're getting a big victory dance, right? So do you know how many pla- like right now, do you know how many places you're going to in the next month? No, because I'm also kind of a gypsy. Like, I'll go somewhere, and I'll ask when I'm there, you know, who are your friends that have this kind of stuff? Where, where are the people that are in the area that have this kind of stuff? And I'll just, I will just keep going until I have overloaded my trailer so much that I know it's going to take me twice as long to get home because I'm going to have blowouts and all kinds of shit. Like, you know, like, I know it's time to go home at that point. Has that happened where you, you're driving home and then you've had, like, Oh, tires blow out? Absolutely. I, I bought more tires than uh, I ever should. Ever. Axles. Because of the weight. Parts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and so I don't have a commercial driver's license, just a standard driver's license. So my truck and trailer are, uh, they accommodate the, the weight ratio that you can have right. with a, a regular license. But I constantly am way overweight. Way I I have been out picking before and been having such a good time and doing so good that I will unhook a trailer, call someone to come get that one, go buy another one, and keep going. Oh, that's a baller move right there. Yeah. yeah. How do you do something that? Do you have to find a trailer? Or you got to go now. Oh. All of a sudden, you got to find it. Tra- you buy all the shit, and you're like, all right, I get the trailer after I get all this stuff. Yeah, like so. If you're far away from home and you're just killing it, and you don't, you're like you know that the next place is going to be amazing or you were at the next place and it's amazing and you're like, shit. So, yeah, there's always trailers to be bought everywhere. everywhere. And do you, do you get all sweaty with thinking about all the shit you have to do in order to get these things back to your house? No, I love it. Oh, you do? I love it, yeah. See, the sweatiness like, would be me being an idiot and blowing the tires out and all that shit on the side of the highway, like trying uh, to change it out, yeah. What's the longest, what's the longest distance you've gone to, to pick? Um, I've, I've been to Canada, uh, from Texas. I flew into, um, uh, Grand Forks, British Columbia, Canada one time. No, I, I flew into, uh, uh, Seattle 
and rented a U-Haul and drove across the border, which was an interesting transaction. It was in a small town. Whoa. Two lane, like there was one entry port in and then one, you know, it was a one laner in, one laner out. And when I went in, they were like, you're coming here in a U-Haul with empty, empty, and you're going to buy anvils and then you're going to be back in a couple hours with anvils. And I said, yes, that's, uh, you know, it's what I do. They're like, how much money do you have to declare? And I think I had like probably 20 grand in my pockets. What I had done was I just separated like 2000 here, 2000 here, two. And I was like, oh, yeah, I just have $2,000. And I kind of showed it to him because, you know, I think if you have over 10 or 10 grand, yeah, right. you got to declare it or something like that. So I come back like several hours later, and the U.S. side is just baffled. They don't even know where to start. You know, I instantly got pulled over to the secondary type of thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the guy that, that pulled me over was one of those, like, you know, he probably had like the worst case of micro penis possible. <laughs> Like an actual innie, <laughs> like small dick syndrome. He had huge jacked up truck in the parking lot, and yeah. he was just just railing me. Like I thought at one point that they were going to cut one of the anvils half in two to make sure that it wasn't full of drugs because it was so bizarre for them to experience this. Until there was a shift change, and one of the new people coming in had followed my Instagram page and knew who I was, and then things became amazing. <laughs> Can you believe that? That's no. unbelievable. Yeah, it was really cool. I'll tell you a funny story that's similar. It wasn't funny, really, but it was my, the only time I ever served on a jury was um, there was this case, and I ended up on this jury for six weeks, and we got sequestered. It was a drug case. Oh, wow. And, and I shouldn't have been on the fucking thing. And I got on, I was going, I had a studio in Brooklyn and I was going to the shop at two or four o'clock in the morning to go down to Center Street at nine. And it was awful. It was awful. But the case involved this, these, this drug group up in New York who was driving an empty U-Haul down to Miami. Okay. They would, no. Yes. Yes. They would buy a water heater in Miami cut a hole in the water heater and then they would fill it with cocaine and bring it back to New York. Wow. And then what they would do is, so they cut a hole in the, in the water heater, shove it filled and they're buying a box truck for one water heater and they're filling it up with all this cocaine and they would drive it up to like an auto body shop, like somebody's chop shop. They'd open the door. Everyone would come in. They close the door. Everyone, they would disperse the drugs and that would be the end of it. And I just remember as being in contracting a little bit at the time and working with tools and stuff like that, the, the, the people on the jury were just baffled by it. Like they didn't, like there was one guy who was just like, this sounds normal to me. I said, it sounds normal to you to drive an empty U-Haul from New York to Miami, sure. buy a water heater that you could have gotten at the Home Depot in Queens, yeah. then cut a hole. And then on the tapes, they were saying, just cut a, cut a hole in the thing. I said, you know, usually what happens is, is they say, I want a two inch by two inch hole. I want a five eighths of an inch from this. I wanted to, sure. and we were, I was trying to explain it to him, but I was just like, the police never did it. I mean, it took the only reason why they caught these guys was because they were already being investigated and it was a wiretap. Uh, but it was crazy because I could totally see the same thing happening with you. We're like, you, you, you drive this empty truck into Canada. <laughs> yeah. And then by yourself. You come back by yourself. Yeah. And then, you know, they're just, they have no idea. I mean, why would the police think to cut open an anvil? I mean, that's just crazy. That, that was just a thought that went through my head. Like, how am I going to prove to them that these are actually anvils? And it's not like a, it's not a disguise 
you know, emblem or something like that for drugs because they were really, they were like legitimately baffled by my presence. And there was like 150 ambles in the back of this thing. Oh my God. So that must've been a ton of weight. Oh, it was a ton. And it was way overloaded for the U-Haul, which I had no concern for. I didn't care less, you know. That's hilarious. Yeah. I think it's hilarious that you're trying to explain it. I mean, obviously it's like. That is a tough explanation. It I is mean, not really. If you, but the thing is, is like the honest, the honest, the, the even if they're crazy sounding, if you're just like very plain about it, I mean, that sounds pretty normal. Actually, it doesn't sound the ab- abnormal. Well, like, uh, yeah. So when they, you know, the first question out of their mouth is like, you know, do you have anything to declare? And I say no. What are you hauling in the back? Blacksmithing anvils. And that's like you know dead silence, and you're like, uh waiting for them to say something so that you can react it's like when you get pulled over like you don't want to be like you know like just start talking all blathering yeah because then they're going to be like oh yeah something's up right so i'm just waiting and then he like it had one of those like uh little glass doors you know that opens like hey can i take your order (laughs) (laughs) he like closes that thing and turns around and he's like you know he waves over i guess his supervisor or something and they're conversing and i'm like fuck this is gonna be something (laughs) It's going to be something, you know. So It is kind of, I can imagine it being hard to explain. Right, yeah. Because people don't know what anvils are anyway. Yeah, and like, then when you try to, that, here's the other thing that people are always baffled by is my age. Like, everyone always, when they meet me after only speaking with me on the phone or whatever, and, and maybe not have seen my thing, is they're like, dude, I thought you were like 85 years old. You know, because to be a collector and to have accumulated the things that I have, you know, wouldn't be... uh necessarily normal by someone who's 43 right right uh most 40 year olds don't have the interest of this stuff like i understand this is an anomaly right so you just you know dealing with this border crossing thing is just uh, a, a a product of that i guess what is the best anvil you got the best one you've ever bought i know you have a you gotta have a top five favorite anvils What's the best oh, one? Uh, I know you like French handles. Yeah, right? I have an 800-pound right. French pig right beside my, my desk here in the office, uh, which for a long time was the largest known 800-pound French pig. Largest that particular known. one. Yeah. And uh, I got a call last year from a guy, and he's like, hey, I have a bigger one you're going to be interested in. I said, okay, send me a picture. He sent me a picture. It looked beautiful. I was like, God bless. That's amazing. What does it weigh? 801 pounds. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> You know, it's like, because I knew I would have to be a pay a major premium from this guy, which I would do if he presented me something that was, you know, of of interest. But one pound heavier, go fuck yourself. <laughs> well, how big do they get? <laughs> well, they, a guy in uh, uh, Italy found one that's several thousand pounds. He was staying at a hotel. And at the end of the workday, he's got the blinds open in his hotel room and he's looking out in kind of the bay area or the, the area where there's water. And he sees this forklift kind of pull around and do this like loop in front of the gate and set down this huge metal looking object, which was clear. It was a French anvil. And the thing is fucking massive. Like it is. He takes the cake for it. He's got the biggest one, the most badass. I would imagine it would cost a hundred grand to buy it or more. I mean, I could go on and on. It's amazing. Like I geek out over it. I'm glad he got it. You know, in France, uh, my uh, my part, my podcasting partner Craig Lockwood says that there are French anvils everywhere. everywhere yeah. They're giving them away. Yeah, 
Same thing with the UK. I mean, you know, I've got 132 anvils in the UK right now waiting to be shipped. I just don't want to have to pay the freight prices right now. Oh, so they're they're all in storage. They are, yeah, there there is a 40 foot container just waiting. So the thing is it's like typically to ship a container from the UK costs me about 6 to $8,000 the freight fees. And right now the ship is cheap as quote I got's like 32 grand. Hey. Yeah, so it's 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 like So how, what do you so what are you going to wait for? Yeah. Listen, in, in my life, I've learned that patience always pays off and you don't get in a hurry, then, you know, you can't ever be stressed out about something happening because you've had time to think about it, you know? Uh, and I am spontaneous, but in this situation, I'm fine I'm just waiting. Let's wait six months and see what, what happens. I mean, I don't think that that type of inflation is going to be concrete, right? I just don't. I think that those, the market's going to change and things are going to shift. And I think the economy at scale will, come back down, maybe not to what we've been experiencing as normal, but like the gas prices and stuff you're experiencing right now, I think all that's going to have a correction as we move forward. I, I'm, you're on, on a level, when I see the, like the, the power hammers you have and the mechanical hammers you have, I just love, I just, you, I can only, you've created a re- reputation that whatever you put up there with the exception of that last $5,000 anvil, it's just <laughs> top of the line. Yeah. How did you start restoring hammers? So I'm drawn by kinetic things. I really love uh, how things that are kinetic move and work and watching why they do what they do. And so the mechanical power hammer uh, is one of those things that's very intriguing to watch it work. I like, I care more about how it works, why it's doing what it's doing and all that versus the person that's using it just wants it to work to now manipulate their metal, you know what I'm right. saying? So I've always been drawn to those hammers for that reason. And I, there's something that I just geek out about once they're done and they work and they're doing their thing. It's like, wow, this is pretty cool. Like, like it, it's amazing to think that like in 1871, you have this German immigrant that comes to Mankato, Minnesota. He has three boys these three boys then in the, the, the later, you know, 1890-ish, create this company to make power hammers. And now in 2020, they're still a thing. Like, tell me that there is not something nostalgic. There's not something amazing. There's not something aesthetically pleasing about what these things do and represent. And I just love them. I love the history of them. I mean, if, if you can't enjoy the rhythm of a well-tuned hammer, then you also need to probably kill yourself. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I've seen, I mean, I think it's interesting because there's, I guess there's two approaches. One is what it's going to do for you. And then the other is it's in an, it in of itself. Yeah. So I totally appreciate what you're, what you're saying because I, the first power, the first, little giant i saw working really well and like just tuned up and it was jesse's 100 uh his 25 pound little giant yeah covered in grease covered in grease totally. covered in grease totally. but it was like on the money dot you know it was amazing to watch it move yeah yeah they are they're they're beautiful and th- there is a lot of talk around these hammers, right? I get, there's a lot of talk about the prices. There's a lot of talk about how they function, a lot of talk about how hard they should hit. And the negative that you hear about that is 
people that are experiencing an untuned hammer, an unrestored hammer, a hammer that needs help, right? So if we digress a little bit, there's a, there's a, there's a touch or maybe a smidge more than a touch of narcissism involved with this for me, I guess, admittedly, because you're taking something that is a total shitbag titty fuck and you are making it a supermodel, right? You're, you're, you're totally taking it out of the weeds. You're taking it out of, out of this environment where it would literally become dust in the wind at some point and you are putting it back together and you're going here do your thing with this and that sense of accomplishment feels good but also a lot of it is is people who want to get hammers they only look at the hammer based on what they think they can do with it as opposed to what it's used for right yeah yeah, that's, and that's, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. Well, but because I mean, I mean, you, you know, mo, you know, the the concept of having a little. I mean, I think personally, and I tell me if I'm wrong. Social media is still 15 years old, at least, just about 15, about about 15 years old. So you're getting this like delayed generational informational learn of learning, based off of a new generation of people who are, have learned how to do with everything on social media and they've learned how to buy stuff. They learned what looks good, what's supposed to do what, but there's not this all encompassing information in regards to what they're used for. Like I was talking to uh, Matt Parkinson a couple weeks ago and he was talking about little, and I've talked to Jesse about a 25 pound little giants were for farmers. They were for sharpening the shears and the, they were, it, it was, oh, the, you know, the, the, the reason why most, um, you know, it was for like, simple stuff it wasn't for 25 pound little giant wasn't for forging you know giant things it was for like you know little things and and the most you know the fact that the most popular or what i mean you tell me the the anvil that's the the easiest to find in the united states or well in the northeast at least are about 150 pounds is because that's the ones that the non-professional blacksmiths were using so they could move it around their barns oh yeah 100 percent, or their wagon you know, they wouldn't buy something that they couldn't take in their wagon because there was not freight. There was not, you know, uh, maybe there was like a Clydesdale-driven wagon that was a freight wagon, but, you know, that would be for transporting the big, you know, blacksmithing anvils. How big do you think the Little Giant company was? Um, That's a good question. I, you're talking about at its height, at its heyday? Yeah. Well, know. you're talking about the three, the, the German family started it, right? Okay, well, That's what you're talking. Their, their first year in production, they made 20, 50 pounds, 50 pound little giants, right? And that was with 12 employees. But from, Jeez. you know, 19, or from 1896 to 1979, the, the company morphed into so many different things. And it started out as a machine shop and then, you know, it got sold and this and that, and the three brothers split up and got back together. And you, so you have you have the the new little giant company. You have Mankato, uh, uh, the uh, those hammers. Then you have uh, little giant company. So it kind of bounced around, and you know, in its later years, it was owned and operated by a huge foundry that had hundreds of employees. Right, so it was more than just little giant at that point. But like, how would people get little giants? Oh, Were there distributors from the 1800s i think they sold them direct because there is a dewey decimal style card catalog system that still exists with handwritten notes on who bought it when they bought it and where it went so if you're in so the so you would if you had a shop 
in let in let's say uh, Troy, New York, or some blacksmith area, you have your guys, and you're just like, I, we need a couple little giants or something. They would send a letter and oh, then yeah, say or a telegraph. There's... They tell the telegraph, we need some fifty pound little giants. How do we get them? Or I, I'm in, I'm interested in like how business was done back then, where you would say, I need a couple. Fi- maybe I don't. Maybe they'll write back. Maybe you don't need fifty pound little giants. Maybe you need something else. Yeah, I don't. I'm, I don't know the evolution of that. I would imagine that you had traveling salesmen that had the salesman samples and then would come to you and make a presentation, and then you could you could buy from the salesman, and maybe he did a telegraph message back. To the factory, imagine? I think it would be amazing. I would actually love to do that because it would be interesting to see if you extracted all of these smartphones from everybody today, how fast people would crash and burn. Well, I mean, if you think about how and how do these things get transported? You know, how did you know Samuel Yellen? There are pictures of Samuel Yellen's shop in 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 Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, and it's a whole building. And all the power hammers are run by a couple of flywheels. Yeah, so amazing. and it's there's these leather straps whipping around to the ceilings all that. over the place. I love that. And you wonder how they figured it all out. You wonder how they got all that equipment. You, I wonder how those that the German family figured out how to build those fifty pound little giants. What were they? How did they? That's the story. Yeah. The story is, is how did they do it? Yeah, I don't I mean, I don't know specifically how they did it. I just know that they did it and they were successful at it. And I think back then, you know, uh everything was figured out with pencil and paper and and mathematical equations and no technology other than the mind and the mind, you know, the exploration of the mind and being able to put that into play. And then how do you figure out your market? How do you figure out how many I should be making? Cuz I mean like how do you figure out how many we need, and then what is the what is the time of growth of the company? Like, there's so many questions I have for these goddamn people. Someone's got to go back in time and tell me. Yeah, I mean that would be interesting. Can you imagine? To study. Yeah, it would be very fun to, to be, learn this. I'm sure that growth would be generational. It wouldn't be like yearly. It would be you would have to see it generationally because then was it word of mouth that they were selling these? So you, speaking of which, you have some of those salesman samples, those little tiny. I have one. Giant. It was only thirteen made. Tell me about that little sale, that little sample. I wanted one for years and years and years, and it's like sixteen inches tall. It's full functioning, super amazing. They only made thirteen, and they've all been accounted for for years. And I knew that the only way I would get one is if someone died. Right, unfortunately, and it doesn't mean I was going to go murder anyone, but maybe right, close to it. I don't of know. Course. I thought about just it keep your ears close to the, you know. Yeah, I knew where a few of them are. Maybe I was, you know, take them out. But anyway, uh, one day, since I was up at Sid Sudemeyer's in uh, uh, Nebraska City, Nebraska, where he was the previous owner of Little Giant, and uh, just a beautiful, wonderful man. Uh, he's one of those guys that no one can ever say anything bad about because he's so great. And uh, he knew that I had wanted one for years and years and years. And he said, hey, Andrew, pull that filing cabinet uh, over there, the bottom shelf open. And I opened it and it was in there. And of course, my jaw just came unhinged, you know, like an anaconda fixing to swallow a nutria. Uh, and I was like, what are you doing with that? And he's like, that, that's yours. That one's going to be yours. He goes, but you're going to have to pay for it. And I really had to pay for it, but I didn't care because... I'd won one forever. It's only one. I'd only one of the every size type of thing that I didn't have. And so I bought it and 
that night I took it back to the hotel room and put it in bed with me like I was sleeping with Cindy Crawford. I mean, it was amazing. <laughs> I just couldn't get enough of how exact the details were just scaled down. It, I, I, it's always interesting to think about how I, I, I think a lot about how the blacksmithing, there was such a, I mean, the golden era of forging was at such just a, it's in terms of civilization. It's higher than any, probably right up there with prostitution in terms of like the importance the importance of it in regards to society. I would, probably. I would like to close. understand the importance of prostitution in regards to society, but uh, the evolution of it. Well, it's the oldest. I mean, it's the oldest business on earth, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty much the oldest, right? Yeah, but. So, I mean, that's important. It has such a selective clientele. It has a selective. Uh, we didn't. Yeah, I'm, there's blacksmithing's got a selective clientele too. Not back in the day; it was a huge necessity. So you think that prostitution was was uh, was a better business than was not a better business than blacksmithing? I don't know. No, man. I think it was. I a think niche, it's neck and neck niche market. Oh yes, and uh, yeah. the people that partake in that probably loved it, and it was amazing. Back then, I would probably have been doing it too. Well, uh, I think prostituting, not more. being. I would be the prostitute, not. I got the, you. Yeah, yeah. I got you. Don't worry. Pitcher, don't worry. not catcher. We'll edit this part out. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Leave it in. But I, of course, I don't edit this. Are you kidding me? I'm giving you the old watch. Watch my cards. I, I, I find it be fascinating to think about how blacksmithing kind of. I always think about how it's never going to really ever make it to that golden heyday that it used to have, where everybody depended on you know forging and stuff like that. So it makes me wonder about like, I mean, the little giant company was like one of the last bat and Bradley and all those other companies were like the last bastions of kind of seizing into this growth of you know, the forging world. And I just would be interested to know more about the the history of the company. I'm sure I'm going to get like my ass chewed out by like Bob Menard or something like that. Oh, you didn't read this book. I, I, you know, no, I didn't read yeah, it. Just Bob. Bob, just tell Bob to shut up. Come on. Bob's um, all right. So forging still exists. Like the evolution of forging has not stopped. However, it did in the seventies really change paces. Whereas the for, forging out of necessity meaning you're making things that you need in your day-to-day, doorknobs and hinges and whatever that may be, that came to like a full stop, if you will. And blacksmithing could have died at that moment if it wasn't for the artisans that picked it up, right? right? The artisans have really been what is keeping it alive. And I think if you you focus on, or or if there was graphs that showed... <clears throat> from the 70s to current day, like the progression of blacksmithing, I think you would see a, 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 a an increase, constant increase. Now, it may not just be like a huge increase, but I don't think it's ever digressed. So I think as we evolve as people that love DIY type stuff, meaning homemade knives, homemade tools, all of these things, then blacksmithing will continue to progressively get more and more interesting, therefore getting it closer to that golden age again, just in a different format. Well, it's it's definitely something's happening because I mean I mentioned this a, a few times is the fact that this year at the uh, the Blade Show this is the biggest group of this is the biggest class of people 
applying for the journeyman Smith in, I mean, it's like 45 people, which is almost unheard of. Right. And they they all come from that, you know, the beginning stages of Forge and Fire. And then, the, you know, you can attribute to social media to that and the growth of trying to people kind of coming back to this, you know, stand or something like that. I, I'm just interested to know how, and now that you see companies like Coal Ironworks making these presses that are much more uh, approachable, to people in a garage it's just interesting to see what's going to happen when is the when is the next american power hammer company going to like emerge oh yeah because we can't it's got it can't just be all these you know chinese power hammers and stuff like that no offense to chinese power hammers i'll take an an yang any day yeah so that i mean that's my thing like i think those are great hammers except for where they're made and except for how they're made if you look at it like how Anyang gets made. It's not all made under one roof. It goes from this shop to that shop to this shop to this shop, and these people are stealing from these people, and these people are right. stealing. It's a very interesting thing, right, uh, that you can't control, but the end product is great. I see a lot of people using them. I've watched a lot of people use them. I've used several of them myself. They're good hammers. They're made in China. I don't support that, so therefore I don't, you know. But the 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 the, the uh, as a manufacturer of equipment like that, the, you have so many OSHA regulations, and then you have an insurance policy that's going to have to be huge, right? Yeah, a liability insurance policy because you know if you're manufacturing that, that the the way that I explain getting your hand caught in between two anvil dies on a power hammer, whether it be pneumatic, you know, mechanical or whatever, is it's not going to smash it; it's going to vaporize it. Right. It is going to pop it like. Gallagher popped watermelon on stage with his hammer. Like, it is over, right? And therefore, an insurance policy that would cover the use of an item like that is going to have to be pretty substantial. So then how do companies like Coal Ironworks and all these other companies that make uh, those kinds of things, and I obviously don't know. I mean, how do they they handle that liability? You'd have to ask them. I don't know. I mean, I I would assume that they did it for a while without that liability insurance. They'd have to have it now. I'm gonna probably have. I'm gonna have them. I'm gonna have them on at some point. I'll talk to. Yeah, them they've got it. a great. Because it'd be great. To, I mean, I just see. I just see that kind of technology. I mean, that kind of what they're doing now, especially with their CNC. You know, their they have that CNC that basically puts in a kiss block. You know, it's that. I just find it hard to believe. And then there are all, all you know people doing clay Spencer Kapire hammers, and you're gonna have people building their own tire hammers, and it would be something else if there was this. You know, company. You know, it's more and more American companies starting to make anvils. You'd think that there would be some company that is going to produce Power mechanical hammer. hammers. Yeah, they may. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, when you look at Coal Ironworks as a, uh, like in its brief history, because it's not been around for that long, it, it has already gone through some uh, crazy changes in business you know one of the founders dies. Yeah, which is very sad because it was an amazing guy, and I spoke to him a lot and. Uh, you have that aspect of it. And then in the beginning, like they were putting out uh, these uh, presses that had the shittiest weld jobs you have ever seen in your life. Like people like Helen Keller was welding this where, where she couldn't see what she was doing. You know, like it was terrible. And if they don't want to admit that, I'd be glad to send pictures of some of their first stuff. But I think they would admit that because now you have these perfect welds and you have these really fine-tuned machines that have these electrical components that coincide with them that are quite honestly pretty baffling at how good they work you know it's it's so cool to see that 
so the the evolution of that company in its brief history has really been substantial. It'd be nice to see some more American companies, and it seems like that that's. I would think it's be on the on the on the horizon. Yeah, I think it's you know because the appetite's there. Totally, totally. Yeah, I think you have people that uh, you just need a couple more of the coal ironworks type companies to come forward and get started and establish themselves. And I think once people see that they can do it because others are successful, they'll piggyback that. Now you've probably taken apart and put together and fixed more mechanical hammers than anyone in a, in a handful of people in the United States. Yes. If you were to build your own mechanical hammer, what would you do? That's a great question. It would be so overkill for what it was, and it would be so capable that there would it would be undeniable that there would ever be a question about its functionality, its precision, its but it would also be crazy expensive because of that. Like 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 all right, go tell me what's undeniable about it and tell me how expensive it is. Like it's the most rigid, sturdy, heavy duty machine that was so accurate that when you asked it to do something it did it and it did it so finely it would it, it would just be like you know it was meant to be and you're and it would be a mechanical hammer you wouldn't you wouldn't fool with the self-contained hammer no you, you know i like the self-contained hammers they're amazing the nasels and all of them they're really really cool but again i like the theatrical aspects of a mechanical hammer just if you pick up a 50 pound sledgehammer right as a human right. like i'm 170 pounds not quite six feet tall and i pick up this i had brent bailey make me a, a 50 pound crossbeam for this reason and you think about the repetitious blows of a mechanical power hammer and you trying to replicate that there is no freaking way as a human being that you could do that over and over and over again, yeah. especially yeah. not with any accuracy, unless you're Paul Bunyan or something, you know. But uh, for the most part, these machines are doing something that you as a human can't. And then there's the theatrics behind it that, that like, you, you know, the flywheel spinning and there's a spring and it, it, it's just really unique to think of. And then to think of like in 2022, this thing's functioning off of a bearing that is essentially lead-based. That's soft. There's nothing precision about it. But it's freaking working perfectly. What is Babbitt? Babbitt? Babbitt's this, so 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 if you take apart a power hammer, it's it's this it's a like a pourable lead kinda that you put the the axle in. Yeah, you put the shaft in, and essentially before there was ball bearings, there was lead bearings which lead copper and tin certain percentages of each and the, the percentages change based off of whether something's going to be really heavy or really light or run fast or run slow you know there's a lot of variables there but for the most part it's just a medium speed copper tin and lead based product that uh you 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 get it to its liquid molten stage and then you pour it, and when it cools down, it solidifies around the object that is going to need to have you know the bearing around it, and you use it until it wears out, and you pour it again. It's amazing to me that that actually kind of like it doesn't just like friction doesn't like melt it or anything. Right, right, yeah. It, it is me too. I love it. 
and there's a people are scared to pour Babbitt, but it's so satisfying. It's just it's one of those things like if you're gonna paint the room, it's like the the uh, preparation, the 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 lead up, or in the culinary world, the mise en place to the actual task is what's the important part. That brings me to the question I've wanted to know: What sent you? To Hyde Park, to the Culinary Institute of America. So, very interesting. And I, I had just an amazing time there. Like, what a great place. But, so I had graduated from college, and my dad was uh, wanting to know if I wanted to get a master's degree. And I went to college because everyone told me I shouldn't, right? I went there because people were like, you're going to waste your time to go to college. and Because I'm very ADHD. And my mind wanders all over the place. I never sit still for very long. I'm just very uh, sporadic about things, admittedly, and have learned to you know, work with that over the years. But So they'd say, don't go to college. You're going to waste your time. Just go to work. You'll be successful, da, da, da. And I went, no, I, my parents want me to go to college. So I went to college, and I graduated in four years. But for every hour I spent in class, I hired a tutor to tell me what the hell they were saying during that class. Right. So I just spent twice as much time to be able to graduate in four years. So my dad was like, well, you did it. If you want to get a master's degree, I'll pay for it. And I was like, fuck that, dude. I have just completed so many hours of school. I fucking never want to look in a book again. And uh, then it dawned on me that maybe I could go to culinary school because I love to cook. I love to barbecue. I built this huge barbecue pit when I was in college and we did all the cook offs and the chili cook offs and party i mean it was amazing so i went back and i presented the idea to my father hey what if i went to the culinary institute of america up in hyde park new york he's like it sounds good to me so i went up there to learn how to cook properly because i loved to entertain so much and then you how how long of a how long of a how how many years was it that's what two three years up there I guess yeah, yeah. I, I never went there. Oh, I thought you went. I mean, I visit. I went to the. I went to the Peter Comp, which is in Manhattan. I was doing school at night. Oh, but my business partner. You were a pussy. That's what we thought, anyways, from the CIA. Well, I, <laughs> I, it was, but I mean, I had. A, I had a. Stu- I was. I was. I was working. I had a studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. I was working all day, and then I'd go to class at night, and it was just oh, because wow. it was the only way I could do it. So, did you th- when you when you went to Hyde Park and I spent a lot of t- I actually I spent a lot of time there because my father had a had the, one of the premier wineries in Hudson Valley called Clinton Vineyards and we were very very tight with the CIA to the point where in the beginning stages like in the in the in the I guess it was the early '80s. He got very involved with the Culinary Institute of America, and it was one funny story. Is back, you know, they call the Culinary Institute of America the CIA, but before, you know, so a lot of people say I went to the CIA, they think you're a spook. Oh right, you know? yeah, and, 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 yeah. So I remember my grandfather, my mother's dad, was babysitting me, and then apparently he he stayed up all night waiting for my dad to come home, and he says, "Ben, we have to talk." I got a call from the CIA and I want to know what kind of problems you're in. And he was just like, no, 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 Bill, Bill, there wasn't, it's the Culinary Institute of America. And he's like, you sure? Because they said they were from the CIA. I'm like, yeah, it was the Culinary Institute of America. I love that. We were very tight with them. And and it's such a, even now, you know, COVID really kind of fucked them up because it was really hard for them to, I mean, the restaurant industry now is like a, disaster yeah I, know. I feel bad for a lot of those people they can't get they, i have people they can't get people to work they can't get people to, they, all these cooks who spend all this time in culinary school and they, they can't get people to work i don't understand that because it seems like the jobs are there like we're just 
Either everyone died or no one really worked anyway. This is your chance if you've never gone to culinary school and you want to learn how to cook. Restaurants will train you right now. Yeah. And that's, don't go to culinary school. Go to a restaurant right now. And it's likely that they won't yell at you and treat you like a shithead like we got treated when we were going through all that. They are going to kiss your ass totally. up and down the line. You're going to be like the worst cook they've ever had, and you will be treated terrifically. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Right after you so, cook everyone's family meal. <laughs> so, yeah. What was your favorite part of culinary school? The, okay. The best day for culinary school for me was uh, my roommate and I went with the Culinary Institute of America's paintball team over to the West Point campus. And we played paintball against them and smeared their assholes, <laughs> smeared their assholes into the ground. It was, I, we had such a great time. And when we left, I was like, I bet those people are so embarrassed that the CIA you, just beat their ass in paintball. Like they're the ones who are telling everybody it was a central intelligence agency. Oh, I'm sure. They yeah. were not saying the culinary institute. Right. Yeah, we got smoked by the CIA. Yeah, they, yeah. They're proudly saying the CIA. Yeah, their covert team over there. <laughs> I was actually looking last night. We were. I was thinking about you and we were, my kid. And I, my kid wants to go into. She doesn't want to go to culinary school, but she likes to bake. She was going to get a job at a bakery, and we were going through all my culinary notebooks. Yep. And it was still fun to kind of look at the approach of culinary school because the the when we did it when we were when I was a Peter Comp now it's the Institute of Culinary Education. It was very team oriented. It was very restaurant oriented. It wasn't as much like you know learning how to cook as much as it was working as a team. Did you did you feel a lot of pressure at the CIA? Because it is the it is the premier that and Johnson and Wales are the premier culinary schools in, in the United States. Absolutely, I you know you can't just go to the CIA. You can't just sign up and go. No. You have to have some prerequisites there. And uh, it's true, I may have had some people write me letters, you know, to get in to where I you know got around that. But so the the thing is, is the people that go there are like legitimately interested in being there for the most part. It's not just like a just sign up thing. And it's very right. expensive as well. Um, but I was very surprised at how intense it was and how serious they take and how involved it is. It is a no bullshit, like full hands on, be on your A game every day type of thing. Do you see a lot of similarities between when you were at culinary school to what you're doing now? Do you see, see a lot of... Because I'll say this because... I've known a lot of blacksmiths in the past who had not only liked to cook, but went to culinary school. There's apparently there's a large group of, you know, it is very, there's a lot of similarities in terms of taking ingredients and proper technique and there's timing and there's finesse and then there's, you know, approach and, and everything about it is very disciplined. I feel like there's a huge connection between cooking and, and foraging. And I wonder what you take away from it now. Yeah, I would agree with that. So my first year in culinary school, they, uh, I, I believe at the time, <clears throat> and my numbers may not be exactly right, but I believe at the time there was 25 or 30 master chefs in the world, of which 17 were professors at the CIA. And one of them was a woman I remember very well, and she was retiring that year because she had um, started a blacksmithing and welding business. And her thing was to make these very ornate gates and chandeliers and things of that nature. And I remember sitting in her product knowledge class and her talking about there not being a whole lot of difference between going to the market and buying, you know, cantaloupe, watermelon, honeydew, whatever it, items 
or going to the steel yard and buying steel, you bring both of them back and immediately cut them up and start incorporating them into other things. So yeah, I would agree. There's a ton of similarities there. Ton. Do you, when you got out of culinary school, did you start working in a restaurant or? So I went, I didn't go to culinary school to be in the culinary world. Okay, so my my dad's best friend uh, is a restaurateur and owns like a hundred restaurants or something like that. And uh, I learned very young that you were always working when everyone else was playing, right? Right. And um, I have another business. I, I've I've been in, involved with the uh, farm and ranch uh, community for a long time, buying and selling you know ranch properties, recreational ranches. And so I like to play when everyone else is working, not work when everyone else is playing. You know what I'm saying? So I never really embraced the idea of going to work, you know, my way up and then opening a restaurant one day. I just, I just, it wasn't for me. I did, however, go. You have to go on an externship and cook for six months at a place, which I did the mansion on Turtle Creek here in Dallas. Uh, And then afterwards, I just uh, would do caterings and do private dinners in people's homes and that kind of stuff just for fun because it was, you know, still so fresh. But I realized not long, you know, after that, that that's a shitload of work. Like, it's amazing how much work you have to put into that stuff. It's, it's, It's weird for me because... If I hadn't gone to culinary school, I wouldn't have been on this path right now because I, I only cooked professionally three nights. Okay. Oh, no, four nights. Yeah. And it was because at the time, I was while I was in culinary school, I was commissioned to do a table for Charlie Palmer in Grand Central Station, and I was supposed to go to a meeting, and I said, I can't go to this meeting. I'm taking classes in culinary school. Yeah. And they hired me on the phone call. They knew I had to do the internship with someone, and they were like, you speak our language. I wouldn't have worked, and then I ended up working for Charlie for a number of years, and he's still a close friend, mentor, yeah. or whatever. I would never have gotten involved in the restaurant. I would never, if I, if I, they, he hired me because I had culinary background, and then I also could build stuff. I would never have gotten involved with them if I hadn't been in culinary school. And I was trying to explain it to my kid because he was just like, well, you, you know, you went to culinary school. I'm like, yeah, I never got cooked for three days. Yeah. I cooked for three days and then I just basically got bought out. You know, I, I got bought out from having to do it. That's cool, though. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like I had aspirations of, I mean, I had to, I, I told Charlie wanted me, you know, he wanted me to build, help build restaurants. And I was just like, I want to cook an Oriole. And then I had to interview with the chef and, and I said, he's like, you're a metal worker. What do you know about cooking? And I said, well, it's all the same thing. And it's ingredients and technique and giving it to someone. There's, I mean, that's it, you know, and, but it is interesting because I, I find myself people meeting more people who are metal workers who have a real interest of just a natural interest in cooking. Sure. So, yeah. So I, I, I interestingly went through a lot of that same stuff on my externship when I was at the mansion on Turtle Creek. You know, I told you earlier, I like to be the best at everything I do and, and do it really well. And so I told the head chef at this restaurant, which you didn't even really talk to the head chef. He was had that type of hierarchy, you know, like he was uh, in his office playing the guitar and you didn't fucking bother him, <laughs> you right. know, type of thing. And I went and knocked on the door and, and uh, I said, listen, Dean, I, I really want to cook on the line in, your, in the fine dining restaurant. And he was like, no, no externs have cooked on the line in five, eight years here. We just don't do it. And I'm like, well, I, I want to do it. 
what what do I have to do to prove you that I can do it? He's like, if you can cook the cafeteria meal for 30 days and not be late and have no complaints, I'll let you cook on the line. I went, okay, fine, no problem. So I cooked for 30 days in the food cafeteria and was never late, never one complaint. And I also didn't ask him, but I was using all the best ingredients and all the nice shit I could get my hands on. They had like multiple walk-ins. I would just go help myself to this shit. And uh, I got to cook on the line, you know? And so my experience there was good because I pushed the limits. But you also want, you, you, you didn't wait for something to happen. I mean, it seems like that's your... Yeah, I wasn't going to wait around. Your method is not waiting for things to happen. You kind of make them happen. Yeah. So the, if you were on the externship in that restaurant, you would cook the, either the cafeteria or the bar food, like nachos right. and just stupid shit. And like, yeah. to me, that was a waste. Like, I want to learn how to make all the sauces that I see these young guys and girls up there just like 15, 20 pans going or pots going, all these different sauces and ingredients flying everywhere. And I just thought I was so intrigued by that. You also want to be one of the cool guys. Like... I remember, I mean, the, 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 line, the line cooks at Oriole were the coolest dudes around. I mean, they were like the baddest ass guys. Now they're like top chef guys and they're like the, the best of the best. And there was this really kind of wanted to be like those guys. Like I really wanted that bad. Yes. Uh, my experience with that was uh, a little different because the way that they were cool wasn't interesting to me. They were... They were asshole cool, and I don't really like asshole cool. I like sophisticated cool. They're cool because they know what they're talking about, not because they're dominating you, right? Uh, and I experienced that domination, you know, having them talk down to you and all that kind of shit. So they were, they were cool, but they weren't – I wouldn't hang out with them for that reason, you know? I guess for me it was more along the lines of, like, I, I, they took me out afterwards for drinks. And it it did feel like a brotherhood, yeah. like they were all working together. And there was, and I, I, I when I talked to uh, last week, I talked to uh, Matt Harris and talk about you know I worked in shop metal shops where you're part of a team working on a project, and this guy's doing the railings, and this guy's doing the pickets, and this guy's laying stuff out, and this guy's making the jigs, and you're part of a team. And I felt that connection with the same working as a team to have this project and the project being service. Like I like the idea, like at the end of the night, they weren't in the weeds too bad and they got out of the weeds and they made it happen. And, and it was just kind of like this brotherhood. I found that to be very similar to like being in a shop and hitting a deadline and making the customer happy and, and like being part of a team. I, I definitely loved, I see the connection and I love it. Yeah. That, you know, what's unfortunate for me is I never in my life to this day have really got to experience that because I, I went to a small private school. I went to a small college. I have always worked for myself. I've never worked in a big corporate environment. I, my school was so small growing up that didn't have football. You know, we played golf, which is a singular sport. I mean, yeah. you know, and all these things. And I think about that now, like, and I have these two wonderful little boys. And I'm like, I want to submerse them around people and that, that, that sportsmanship that the team creates and like the stuff that you're talking about, that camaraderie. Yeah. And I, 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 uh, I often wonder what it would have been like to play on that football team or whatever, but I never, like I said, unfortunately never really have experienced that. 
Well, see, for me, it was the opposite. I was forced onto these teams. Ah. I hated them, and the coaches hated me. Right. And I was singled out, and I didn't like it, and I wasn't good at it, and I felt terrible, and I hated it. But then when I got older, I felt like I copped out, and I wanted to kind of, like, redeem myself. So being on the line of, you know, a restaurant where people are like, you know, your reputation's on the line and, you know, you want to be, you don't want to be a shitty cook or you want to have a bad night. I wanted to kind of gain that back. So sure. for me, it was more like, and then Charlie just would like, he's, he turns to me, he's like, listen, this has been fun and all, but I need you over here. You're not cooking anymore. So oh, really? It was like, oh, I was like, God damn it. I had three nights, three good nights. I had three okay nights. One night I was cleaning the fryer. And I I used the wet rag on the oh, heating shit. element, and I floated the kitchen with steam. Yeah. That was not good. Yeah. And then there was another night I had to uh, shuck some oysters, and I didn't I didn't take off the abductor muscle on the bottom, oh. so they were all stuck. And then the and then the sous chef was like, "Who made these oysters?" So there was like a couple of bad nights, but other than that, it was great. So, but what did you? What was the fourth night? The third night was you're done, and the fourth night. Well, was I'll what? tell you what. When so I worked I worked a couple nights in Oriole, and then I went down to a number of he had a number. Of restaurants and then i was like i became the project manager for some of his restaurants okay. so we would help with construction or rebuilding something or if something needed to be fixed i wasn't the handyman but i was like the project manager but you were hired to cook originally well no i was hired to be the project manager okay. but i told him i wanted to cook and he says if the chef lets you cook i'll let you cook. Oh, okay so it was really like there was like there was all sorts of like you know jiggery pokery going sure. on. sure and then the the then when I was I became the general manager of Orders Restaurants Alva with my business partner now Tony, there was a couple nights where the dishwasher was out sick, so I said I want to be the dishwasher for the what night. What a bad so idea I was that dishwasher. was. Yeah. I liked it. I liked it. I didn't, I liked not having to go deal with the pile. I liked not having to go to the table. No kissing and babies. Everything. Yeah, shaking hands. I hated that. I hated. I don't. I hated that, that stuff doesn't bother me. I don't mind that even if oh, there's a problem. I, but it wasn't my place, and it was just like I just didn't like. I just didn't want to like. Oh, how's everything? You enjoying your dinner? Okay, I didn't like any of that. And then the last, and then the last time I cooked, I loved doing the dishwasher. However, it was a pain in the ass, but I liked it anyway. And they liked the fact that I didn't mind doing it. And then there was the last night I cooked was the the guard manger guy, this cold apps guy was sick, yeah. and I begged them to let me do it. I begged them. I said the waiters can they don't need me. Let me please. So I cooked and it was the one night we got the worst review from the customer who <laughs> wrote this nasty message to my boss. And then he called me up. He says, "What happened? This people said that there, the manager wasn't there." And I said, "That was the night you t you said I could cook. That was the night you said I could cook." He's like, "No, no, no, no more cooking for you. You can stay on the That's floor." That's hilarious, was, man. Sucked. But but it was fun because I was making I was frying oysters and I was making salads and it was I was with the two cooks and it was like and they liked the fact that i i had never done it before and i did all, i did the whole menu myself and uh the whole cold app station myself and they liked just fucking with me the whole time and then then we gave them some cold fries or something like that and, and then i got my ass chewed you, yeah. out the next day oh blast they was just like waiter came up and said that the manager's cooking tonight and i don't know all this bullshit i wouldn't wish the restaurant business on my worst enemy to be honest yeah i'm the same way wish i'm the same way. way but it sounds like you don't like the responsibility of the the success of the entire place being on your shoulders. I like the, I like right now. I like my company. If I had my restaurant, I would have a different opinion, but I was always the number two guy. I was the number two guy in metal shops. I was the number two guy in restaurants. And it was like an exorbitant amount of stress with no 
no compensation. Sure. Compensation wasn't worth the success. Sure. So, the, you, so the stress, yeah. the stress. So it was just like, why am I stressing out when I like we're going in these installs and I was in charge of all the all the tools and I was like, why can't I sleep because I don't know if we have enough ten, you know, ten thirty two bolts. Sure. Why do I have to be the guy who can't sleep because we don't have enough taps or we don't have redundancies? Why do I have to be that guy? So I fucking didn't like that at all. I hate yeah. it. But now I love it. Now I love it. It's my own shop. So everything that goes out, it's like it's mine. It's the well, best. What happens when you're in business for yourself is you get to control the destiny as much as possible, right? Because you can't control yeah. it all. But you get what I mean by that is like if you want to make money, you have to work, right? And if you don't right. work, you don't make money. And therefore, your wife hates you and your kid doesn't talk to you. You know, it's like uh, you become a shitty person, but you're motivated by accomplishment and success and you're doing your thing and it's all based around whether you do it or not. What is the one piece of equipment you is your what's your Moby Dick? What's your white whale? What's the one thing you have your eye out for that you're just you're scouring the globe for that you have to have? That's a. That is such Come a loaded got question a, for me. You got five things. Yeah, at least five things. You're just like, I'm on the lookout for this. I've never seen one. I saw it once. I have to have it. There's a couple power hammers that I really want that I know where they are, but they won't sell them to me. There's a couple of, you know, like that big French anvil I was talking about earlier. I would love to have that, but I'm not going to pay probably what it would take to get it, first of all. And uh, uh, the way I look at it is more like in, in the hunt, in the journey you run across things that excite you the way that that list would excite you without having to state the list, right? When you leave it open, then you find things that are uniquely identifiable or not seen before. Then you can really embrace that feeling of, oh my gosh, this is fucking really cool. So you're living in this, your, your love is the spontaneity of what could, you could find. It's multifaceted, but that is definitely a huge portion of it. Like, it's almost like fishing for you. Like, I feel like it's fishing because you just don't know what's exactly. going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen or what's going to, you're going to find or where you're going to find it. Like, you, you, there's things that you do over the years that you know will turn up leads and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, these things get put in place by individuals. And everybody's interpretation of how things should be placed is different. And therefore, the journey or the quest to find them is always exciting. Now, let's cut the shit. You're a very articulate. You're funny. You're charming. There's got to be something you're going to be you're working on a TV show or something. It's, I just find it hard to believe that you haven't worked on anything or ever thought about anything or something's going to happen because you're just too much of a character. The greatest showman. So here's what I'll tell you about that. I have been working on that, and okay. I just had my attorneys sever my uh, contracts with these uh, production companies and networks because what I don't want to happen is what they want to happen. Let me explain. These production companies seek out um, uh, development dollars from networks to develop shows and they give them kind of like a, just a very brief summary of what they think could be going on or the, right. or in reverse, the networks We'll go to the production companies and say, hey, we, we want a show that's kind of like this, right? Right. And they start to develop, right? So in comes me, right? And they start to develop this show based around me and what I do. And then, 
you know, it progresses. Like the, the, the production company gets the money, they start throwing money at it, and they come down, they film a little sizzle, then they go back and they talk and they come back and they add on to it based off the comments they get back from the network. And it goes through like this five-tier system, as best I could tell. And mine went up to the fifth tier, which was the decision-making process twice, two different development deals. And they would come back and be like, oh, you know, that's neat, but I think we need to add a female in there that goes with them and buys tchotchkes or something for the house that she restores, you know, side by side with them. And I'm like, no. Or it would be based on like what I would consider to be like a buy-sell show, which is I pay this for it and sold it for this, which I think is a, just a crock of shit. Like, so they're they're trying to work their, the different demographics into a show that you've already kind of figured yes. out. And to me, like making a show based around what you paid for it and what you sold for it and kind of the in-between is like, I don't know, it's a little tawdry almost. It's like, a, it's, it, it's not tasteful. Where's the emotion to that? Where is the connection to that? What I want to do is go somewhere and show you, like, for example, I had a customer that I had sold a bunch of stuff to over a four-year period. His great-grandfather was a blacksmith, and he wanted to have the ultimate blacksmithing shop. He had sold his company for $45 million. He retired and wanted the best, the finest, and the most of everything, which I sold him. Okay. Unfortunately, he got cancer and he died. So I went Jeez. to his, I flew up to met with his widow and all that kind of stuff. And the setting of where his blacksmith shop was being built would blow your mind. It was on a 5,000 acre ranch right below the hood mountain in Oregon, huge cliff backdrops and all that. And I'm, and I'm walking through listening to his wife talk about this is where he was going to put this and this is where he was going to put that. And this was already in place, but it was all, it was all in process, right? And as I'm, I, I, we make a deal, and as I'm starting to load this up, up on the cliff, out walks this huge mountain goat thing. This beautiful, white, majestic, and it stares literally at me the entire fucking time I am loading that stuff. And all I could think, is that's him. him. That is his spirit animal saying, take my stuff and go do good with it. Go do right with it. Get this stuff back to people that will live their dreams through having this equipment. Like, don't let it die here. I I'm watching you because I want you to go and do that. You know, and so if you can get that incorporated in the story versus, hey, I just paid you X amount of dollars for this shit and I just went and sold it to so-and-so over X amount, who the fuck cares about that, really? Versus that spirit animal and what that represents and the journey from when you sold it to where it's going, what is it going to make? Spend some time making that stuff with that person. You know, to me, that makes a much better story. And that is an uncomfortable thing for a network to wrap their arms around because it's an unproven unscripted concept that's the problem that's the problem with these things i was supposed to do a sizzle reel with uh this uh, before covid and i came up with this idea and they just took it and they just churned it all over the place and i was just like i'm not looking forward to this at all thank god they didn't do it yeah i the problem is is there's all this money and i know a friend of mine a network friend of mine is saying that they're green lighting everything nowadays like they're green lighting the first seat, the first season, at least of almost everything that they're getting, they're coming around. The problem is, is it's, it's, it seems as though based on the people I've talked to in the, in the, in the shows that are, it's very like, 
it's so formulaic to TV people instead of like storytelling that it's like if you could if I I just talk to you I get chills talking about the fucking mountain yeah it's unbelievable. so like I just find it I find it hard to believe that I just you know I figure I figure at some point you're going to be doing something yeah I would like to and and uh, I'm not I don't have any desire for fame and all that but I am a businessman and that is a great platform to grow business therefore I'm uh, very open minded about it and amenable to it but it's not that it has to be under my format but i think at least if you're going to do a show about someone the way that it gets represented best is to let them be themselves and right. show that you know that was one of the great things about jimmy's show about the that uh, they allowed the make, uh, the, i was the one they just did making fun. yeah i thought it was a fantastic fun. show they let them have their own personalities like there, those. I mean, I know Derek from Malden. Yeah. That was Derek from yeah, Malden. Yeah, totally. I mean, that was like you know, and that was Jimmy. I mean, obviously they kind of punched him up a little bit and made him a little bit more sour, which is kind of more New York, sure. kind of fun. But that was like that was they, they was these weren't characters that were like changed that much. Yeah. You know, I, I I don't know. I I think the TVs. I think the maker community is. It, this is like such a great showcase for the maker's story but i don't know i figure at some point they're going to have you doing something and whatever it's going to be it's going to be good yeah, i would i'd be i'd love that i'd love to share uh the history show the share, share the journey really you know uh because i am different than everyone else that's the maker is i'm providing the tools for them to make right i'm not the one how, making how good of a show would be the story of the you could have a it could be a scripted TV show, kind of like Deadwood or something, but it was the story of Little Giant. That'd be fun. And you have like these characters, and they're trying to figure this out, and then how you do it, and then how you sell these equipment. There's equipment across the country, and as the the, the country is blowing up, the building and building, and how do you just grow as a company in like this, in this strange, strange time? Sure. And then all of a sudden, you you're selling it to you're selling Little Giants to fucking farmers and stuff. That's the that's the TV show. Yeah, I think that'd be fun. I think it may be a little laborious. Um, it would have to be yeah, a short I mean, or something. People like laborious. You just saw Deadwood. Deadwood was great. I mean, that was a, it would be the same thing. It'd be just kind of like you know, was, you have them, let them curse a little bit, and then I don't you, know, the, you know the, the the little giant boys were uh, very um, uh, religious people. Well, we got to change that part. Of okay, it. yeah. I mean, I'm obviously, it's not going to be little giant. It's going to have to be like you know. They, they called it little giant something. because of the size of the youngest guy's cock. <laughs> that much get, doesn't get much better than that, ladies and gentlemen. Andrew Alexander, blacksmith tools on That's Instagram. Right. Yeah, like the hammering of <laughs> what's next for Andrew Alexander? Or are you trying to Where wrap are you going this? next, dude? I can't. I can't. I got. You got to. You got to leave him on a good note. Oh yeah. yeah. Because I'm trying. You know, the little giant is named after the guy's penis. Is about as good as it's going to yeah. get. No, the youngest son's cock. It was, it was the little giant hammer job. Yeah. What's next for for Andrew Alexander? What are you up to now? Man, the journey continues. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and keep providing these tools and machinery out there to people that desire them, that can respect them, and uh, are making things with them, and uh, just keep on keeping on, man. Blacksmith tools on Instagram, guys. Andrew Alexander, I got to have you come back, and we have to talk more yeah, because man. that was a lot of fun. That flew by, guys. Go follow Andrew Alexander. Double A. Blacksmith Tools on Instagram. You can go to his website, Blacksmith Tools. I think it's blacksmithtools.com, right? I have right? no idea. 
And right. he's sometimes he's got, he got a, but he got an old rusty Bradley on there right now. That's about it. And he has like Christmas time. He has these great. Oh yeah, so that's, that you can that make whole thing is being developed right now. I'm not the technology guy, so all that stuff is out of my hands. I just have to say yes or no. But it'll get good coming up. I'm with you. Go listen to Fits All podcast. They do it infrequently, but it's they're having a good time every time they do it. It is fun. Seems seems that way. Yeah, we love it. We love it. I love it. And uh, you're the man. I appreciate your time. Guys, go follow Andrew Alexander. You already do. You're here to listen to this because you already know him anyway. (laughs) Guys, we're going to see you next week for the two-year anniversary. The two-year anniversary. I haven't done a two-year straight no breaks. That's good. We're going to have a... I'm, I'm tired, Andrew. I'm, I'm tired. I might have to take a break after the two-year anniversary. You've we'll earned it. See. You've earned it. We've earned yeah. it, right? We've earned Listen, it. All right, guys. Uh, if they don't, that's the way it is. What can you do? Uh, guys, we'll see you next week. Thank you once again, thank Andrew. Thank you. I appreciate it, buddy. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.